0: Hey, welcome to Stuff Blow Your Mind. My name is
2: Robert Lamb. I'm Christian Sager. And I'm Joe
0: McCormick. And uh, it's Thanksgiving in America, so we're doing what a lot of you guys and gals are doing. We're uh, about to sit
1: down here to a little, a little, little Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, Arnie the Mailbot has actually offered to prepare Thanksgiving dinner for us. But I don't know if you guys noticed, he seems a little hung up at the turkey carving stage. Like he goes to carve and then he stops and resets a bunch of times, I think it may be he's still struggling with the recent installation of Cartesian Doubt.
2: Mm, that mean, always makes me pause when cutting up a bird. Yeah, is
1: the turkey there? Whether How can pigeon, I know it? Whether it's a turkey, goose, sparrow. I can just keep naming birds, guys. Yeah. Penguin. Have y'all <laughs> ever eaten penguin meat? No. No, me neither. Mm, future
0: episode. <laughs> Well, let's let's call Carney in here. I, we we can't wait for him to cut into that bird all all uh, all day long. So, get in here, Carney, and uh, bring us some listener mail because we know it's been accumulating. That's your your primary function is to provide
1: the listener mail for us. So uh, let's see what we got. So as we have discovered, Carney has collected an amazing, gigantic treasure trove of wonderful email from our listeners. And we have so much great listener mail, we absolutely cannot read it all today. We can't even come close. So we're going to read a selection of some of the great uh, messages we've gotten from our listeners. It's not going to be everything. If your email doesn't get read, please don't take it personally. Uh, We we love all the correspondence we get, and we will try to work it into a future episode. We'll probably have another one coming up around... uh, Around the end of the year, around Christmas, New Year's—that that that kind of type yeah. season. Right? Hey, Joe, where uh, where do these come from? Like where where do these letters come from? Where do we where do we get them at? Ah, well, I'm glad you should ask, Christian, because they come straight to the account. Blow the mind at howstuffworks.com. When you email that account, funny story, it goes straight into a wire that runs into Carney's head. And oh. that's how he collects the messages. Unfortunately for us, the wire is often at like human neck height. So when we're walking around the office, we, we can often uh, kind of get our yeah, throats I've caught been on clotheslined it.
2: Clotheslined once or twice, and you know, there's another wire too that runs in all of our feeds from Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we are also blow the mind. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so this one actually comes to us from the mail account, the the, the clothesline wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from Hannah, and she says. I'm an undergrad psychology major, a low-key religious person, and a big fan of science, except astronomy. That stuff makes me anxious. I recently took a cultural anthropology course titled Magic, Witchcraft, and Religion. That sounds right up our alley. Mm -hmm. And one of the documentaries we watched in the class was about temporal lobe epilepsy and
1: the role the disorder played in giving birth to the nascent field of neurotheology. Now, I have to wonder if this... uh is coming in reference to the episodes Robert and I did on techno-religion. I believe that's what it's referring to. That would make sense. Yeah, it sounds like it.
2: Temporal lobe epilepsy is exactly what it sounds like, a type of epilepsy in which seizures occur in the temporal lobes of the brain. What makes this condition even more interesting than other forms of epilepsy, which are also all very unfortunate for the sufferers, is the tendency for patients to report religious-type hallucinations during their seizures. This experience has been reported by both religious and fervently atheistic patients. uh, She's got another paragraph here. Many historical figures who were prominent in religion, such as Joan of Arc and Ellen White, who's the founder of Seventh-day Adventism, have been suggested to have been affected by TLE. Other than the religious visions they reported, these figures were also documented to have fits and dissociative states consistent with TLE. Ellen White's visions actually began occurring after a significant injury to the side of the head, precisely over her temporal lobe. Persinger's God Helmet, which I believe you guys talked about in that episode. Yeah. Uh, we
0: didn't talk about it in that episode, but it's definitely
2: come up a few different times yeah. in the past yeah. on, on the stuff. I feel like yeah. we, we, we've mentioned it before. Yeah. Okay. Persinger's God Helmet is a well-known example of experimental exploration of neurotheology though his work has been criticized and has yet to be replicated. Neuroimaging in Carmelite nuns and Buddhists in meditative states has also shown increases in activity in the temporal lobes during experiences of religious observance. Those who are interested in neurotheology are faced with the question, is this evidence that religion really is all in our heads, or does this show that our brains have an antenna for signals from deities? And then she says that she finds it fascinating from so many angles and thanks us. Well, that's
0: an interesting question because you kind of get you get back to that idea. All right. If there is a divine force from outside the universe reaching into our reality, then the hand of God, the hand of the gods, whatever, it has to make some sort of stirring of the visual universe mm-hmm. of the of the um, observable universe that we can observe so i don't know you could i could see someone try and make an argument to argument to say yes this neural activity is a sign of uh such a force reaching in
1: or uh, the, the other
0: side is just a it's just as compelling
1: yeah in general i wonder what this means for people who um who would take some religious experiences to be authentic like let's say you accept these results and say okay there are uh, there are definitely things you can do to the brain, ways you can stimulate the human brain that cause experiences that seem, at least from descriptions, to be very similar to the religious experiences people have of gods or visitations from angels or, uh, you know, the apocalypses, revelations from heaven. Uh, and you you say, okay, you can cause that with stimulation to the brain. Can you say, well, sometimes it's caused by, you know, physical action in the brain, yet other times the similar experiences are truly caused by intervention from divine forces or, you know, gods. Yeah, I mean, when you start bringing in the supernatural,
0: I mean, it becomes increasingly difficult, right? I mean, if you're you're going to acknowledge the existence of a supernatural force, Mm -hmm. then what are the rules for that supernatural force? Well, I'll
2: play Mulder on this one. What if it's both? so what if well this yeah that's what i'm asking i mean antenna, would some people yeah. say mm-hmm.
1: yeah okay you can stimulate the brain and cause experiences this way but right. some very similar experiences are for real magic yeah
2: it reminds me of um philip k dick's later work especially that book valis have you guys read that before where I he's, valis he's being no. contacted by an outside force and uh yeah it and there's there's quasi-scientific explanation for it, but it's also kind of like, is this in his head or not?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it all comes down to interpretation. And, and you know, you often hear um, the, the example brought up uh, when it comes to auditory hallucinations and that if yeah. you hear voices and how you're not supposed to respond to the voices. So, you know, any kind of supernatural, supernatural occurrence, paranormal experience, uh, even though the the, the the cause is very rooted in uh, the natural world and in natural phenomenon, if you answer the voice, if you heed the call, right, Yeah. then uh,
2: that's all it necessarily takes. Yeah. Well, I think Hannah's proposed a potential new topic for us to maybe go down the rabbit hole with.
0: Yeah, we should do uh, an episode or more than one episode on the, the God Helmet Just, and the uh, religious I, experience. And neurotheology have, in general sounds yeah, like a I, great I, hole.
1: I have really been wanting to revisit techno-religion because there was so much I wanted to say in that episode that we couldn't even fit into the two parts we did on yeah. it. Yeah, it can be an ongoing uh, series if uh, folks are interested, yeah. Please let us know if you want to hear more on uh, the electromechanical messiahs
0: of the world. Now, Joe, uh, the robot is trying to hand you another piece of mail. Oh, this I, one I seems better to be covered in because... turkey entrails, uh, uh, so I think it managed <laughs> to cut into that bird.
1: Because yeah. It's kind of menacing with that electric carving knife in the same hand, but okay, here we go. Hi, I heard your recent podcast about Echo Borgs, and I was surprised that in your discussion of Cyranoids that you didn't really go over the reality TV hidden camera shows, because a lot of those are all about someone talking in your ear, telling you to do stuff. Some of them, like What Would You Do?, are just instructing actors for scenes to try to get reactions out of the surrounding people to test social ethics. Others are like Repeat After Me?, or maybe a famous person or something has an earpiece and is told to do crazy stuff to unsuspecting people. I think for most of the celebrities, people just think that they're eccentric famous people or something. Uh, hmm. I've never seen a reality TV show like this. It, though it, it there, rings
0: a faint bell, but yeah, I've never seen it. Uh, there so. is a
1: certain way in which reality TV does almost almost tickled the boundaries of, of profound, weird insights on what real behavior is.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I guess, like, I'm not familiar with these two shows that she mentions, um, and I wonder, actually, if they're um, not available in America, uh, because I think her address looks like it might be overseas. But anyways... Uh, First of all, I like I think as just media literacy it's important to be aware that you know, reality TV is always narratively constructed yeah. just, just as much as fictional television is. But but also this reminds me of are you guys familiar with the comedian Kurt Braunohler? No. He he's a pretty funny guy and he does a podcast for Nerdists called the K Hole. Uh, and uh, he he has this a uh, new bit that I recommend our listeners and especially Elizabeth go listen to that's about how he used to be one of these people on a reality type show in which he would sit in a diner and they would set up potential dates like blind dates and they would come in and interact with him and he would have a, a ventriloquist dummy in his lap and would talk to them only through the dummy. <laughs> And apparently this one woman he interacted with was deathly afraid of dummies and just lost her mind and ran out of the restaurant crying. And then, uh, as reality show producers are wont to do, they said, chase her. Uh, So he chased after her with this ventriloquist dummy. He does this much funnier version of the story, so I, I recommend that you go listen to it. But it sounds a lot like what she's... What Elizabeth here is positing. Hold on, like, can there be shows.
1: legal consequences for chasing somebody with a creepy doll? No,
2: because if you, uh, this is my take on
0: fear of any kind of puppets or marionettes. is If you were afraid of a storytelling
2: medium uh, as ancient <laughs> as puppets, then you deserve to be chased to the street. <laughs> well, the funny bit is that at the end, like maybe five years later, he goes to a party and this woman's at the party and she just like freaks out all over again and she says,
1: "That's him." <laughs> And everybody knows who she's <laughs> talking about. Oh, that's great. Oh, wait. Hold on. It looks like Carney has a message for you, Robert, and it's covered in sand. Ah, Hi. I know what this says. This comes to us from Kelly. Kelly
0: writes in and says, hey, guys, just wrapped up your two-part series on Dune, uh, referring, of course, to the science of Dune uh, that we did a two-parter on. Great job. Awesome picks for music, too. I'll be honest. I was never a big reader growing up and have never read the Dune novels. My introduction to Dune was originally through the movie that I recently rewatched. After the movie, it was the computer game Dune 2, developed by Westwood Studios and released in 1992. Wait, what? Yeah. I've never heard of this. Oh yeah, it yeah. like
1: a Command and Conquer style game? It is, yeah. Whoa. She okay. says, uh, It was only loosely
0: based on the novels. The game is fantastic for its era, and I've even found a browser version to play in recent months. It was a real-time strategy game where players would select from one of the three houses, Atreides, Harkonnen, or Ordos. Each house had a spe- uh, specialty units and weapons. The goal was to defeat the other two houses and control all of Dune and her spice by growing your base and defeating the enemies. Some say this was the spawn, of real-time strategy games, and I'll admit I enjoyed many that followed, including Command and Conquer, uh, the Command and Conquer series also developed by Westwood. Yeah, when when we were putting together a lot of this material, I I ended up looking up some of the the old Dune games. Yeah, and these were fabulous because they had these elaborate cutscenes, which was apparently a Westwood Studios thing.
1: Yeah, Elabor- Command and Conquer was the same way. Yeah, that, with some hilarious bad acting too, but with yeah. like early nineties graphics. Yeah, I mean it looked pretty well, good. Though. I think it was the, yeah. the full motion video era, mm-hmm. so oh, the okay. game would be animated, but then when the cutscenes came in, it was essentially like video. Oh, yeah. okay, okay, and, and
0: the the examples I looked at looked pretty good. Like the the makeup was nice. They yeah. kind of they went after the look and feel of the Lynch Dune movie, but mm-hmm. with some additions here and there. Um, it it also this reminds me a bit of the the board game legacy for Dune. There there was a game that came out in nineteen seventy nine from uh, oh let's see who was it? It was Avalon Hill. Uh, they put out a a dune game that had the the circular uh, map of the planet, and you had all these factions and characters, wow. and you're trying to harness the spice uh, uh, market on uh, on a, on arrakis and also uh, manipulate other people form alliances. It was really complex, needless to say, since it was a franchise game it's long out of print yeah, if you get a copy it's hundreds of bucks but the um, the but print and play um, services make it possible now to both print and play the original, as well as various uh, stripped-down fan versions. Uh, There's one in particular that came out in the last year called uh, Dune Dice or... Hilariously, the dice must flow, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which looks wonderful. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but it's dice based. You have the same map. Everyone gets to choose a different faction and form alliances. So
2: and- it's a rich world for gaming. That's for sure. I don't know if you guys talked about this in the Dune episode or not, but you know, you know how Hollywood just loves franchise universes right now. And they yeah. really, you know, they, they're, they're really looking for like the next Harry Potter or the next Star Wars or whatever. Dune is so great but i also feel like it's the books that are really like the heart of what makes it great and and i like both of the movie adaptations by the way but i don't know that you could turn it into a franchise like that but i would kind of love a world where you could just go to the store and buy a dune board game yeah or uh or, or play a dune video game
1: oh i i think that hbo should in the spirit of game Ooh. of thrones make a dune tv series there you it would go. be fabulous yeah that's fantastic well, Because that, that's the problem with the movies you know there's just not enough uh there's not enough room for it to breathe yeah yeah, yeah, good point, Joe. Yeah.
2: All right, HBO producers that are listening, make it happen. So thanks, Kelly, for writing in. And we got another one here coming out of Arnie slash Carney that is also for Robert. Yeah, also covered in sand. Covered in sand and some weird oh, and Arnie's eyes slime. are glowing. All right. Well, this one comes to us from Peter. Peter. And that's
0: P-E-T-E-R, so it's not, uh, we don't have to worry about this big, twisted. Not Peter DeVries. Yeah. (laughs) He says, uh, so, I loved your two-part Dune podcast. Super fun to listen to. Here's my question about reading the book. How do you guys get past the writing style of the book? By which I mean the use of so many common and non-futuristic ideas, words, terms, and names, like who's going to be named Jessica in a thousand years, flapping flying machines, sand trout. (laughs) I'm just really distracted by sci-fi that I, that... Uh, that is supposedly futuristic, high-tech, etc., but was written long enough ago that it seems silly now. Even Williams Gibson's early stuff seems extremely dated to me, and though I loved reading it at the time, it's impossible for me now. But I really uh, want to read and enjoy Dune. I've tried a couple of times. Just curious about how you guys handle that kind of issue, if it's an issue for you at all.
1: Thanks. Uh You know... I, I do have to report that it took me quite a few tries to get going in Dune, mm-hmm. but once I got past page I don't know, twenty or thirty, I couldn't stop. Yeah. Uh but th- I tried, I think, literally like three or four times to start the book and didn't get past the first twenty pages. That's or so. the language though, you mean more so than the the scientific concepts, right? Because um, like, he's I talking think, about I think it's something about how the very beginning of Dune uh there is so much unfamiliar stuff it throws at you right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. There, it it's hard to get a foothold at mm-hmm. the very beginning. You're just thrown right into this. It doesn't hold your hand. Yeah, you're thrown right into this truly alien world, and alien in a way that most science fiction is not alien. Because mm-hmm. most science fiction is you have very standard, conventional kind of culture and and reference points, and there's just some weird technology or some aliens in it. In this, you know, everything that people think is unfamiliar to us. Yeah,
0: I would have to say that in in my uh, enjoyment of Dune. Well, first of all, when it comes to things like oh, the character's name is Jessica, I just I read enough fantasy and sci fi. That I just kind of turn that off. Occasionally, I'll remind myself, "Oh, well, why would they have this word in their language when that word you know, derives from the Greek? Yeah. Did they have? Uh, did they have Greeks in this fantasy world? Probably not. But you just kind of have to turn that off." And and I like to think, "Well, this is probably a translation. This is a translation mm-hmm. of this other world story into my world, and therefore it must conform to the language of my world." Right.
1: That's a good point. I mean, if it's thousands of years in the future, they wouldn't be speaking English. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this. Yeah, this is a translation for us it's kind of like how uh, you read in the Bible that there was a character named Peter. I mean they didn't say the word Peter right if- ironic because this person's name is Peter right yeah. Oh yeah uh, but that's like a you know that's a, an anglicized adaptation of a name that you know you would have pronounced differently. So yeah. maybe maybe Jessica's real name is like Yashika. And yeah. <laughs> it's just like well, the twentieth century reader would read this as Jessica. Yeah.
2: It makes me think of uh some of the stuff that Robert features on Stuff to Blow Your Mind site a lot with the retro futurist oh, flashbacks. And yeah, yeah. that like I think all culture is cyclical, right? And potentially authors like uh like Herbert are thinking along the lines of, well, you know, the name Jessica will come back around again a thousand years from now. Mm. Or or uh the the, the what was one of the ones he mentioned the flapping flying machines like that may sound ridiculous now but maybe at the time it would be some kind of retro version of their future technology.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, I, I like that he mentioned Gibson uh, because Gibson's definitely an author where yeah. I, I can't remember what the technology was, but when I first read *Neuromancer*, right. like somebody gets a fax or something on there, you know, <laughs> yeah. th- there's some sort of bit of technology where you instantly think, oh wait, this is. This is the high-tech near future, and yet this is something that's already uh, uh, antiquated. You run into that kind of problem far more easier with near nearer future sci fi, but Dune is set so far in the future and following this uh, you know massive Butlerian Jihad during which we've turned against so much of our technology. It's like almost anything is fair game. The technologies that we've been forced to revisit, the new technologies, the the old the
1: old ideas that have become new through yeah. the development of metamaterials or what have you. Yeah, I think that's one of the fascinating things about Dune. Actually, is the uh, the how some things are so alien and some things are so familiar and like picking out the weird little elements that have survived the 10,000 years in between. I, I love that there are characters named Jessica and Paul. I think that's that's uh, very curious and strange and I would argue almost definitely deliberate choice on Herbert's part. Uh, I, I, it strikes me as unlikely that he just kind of like was lazy and couldn't right. think of a better name. But I will add that uh, my wife, Rachel, was, it, this was one of the funniest parts of Dune for her, was that they're, the main character is named Paul. <laughs> <laughs> like Paul on the Wonder Years? Come on. Uh,
0: looks like the next piece of mail that Carney has brought out is uh, wrapped in a membrane.
2: Okay, so this uh, we've shaken the amniotic fluid off of this letter, and uh, this one comes to us from Krista, and she's writing to us about the birth call episode that we did she says I under I, or I listened to born under the call with great interest I have only come across one other mention of the folklore associated with this and I thought you might find this interesting forgive me if you mentioned this I was at work while listening and may have missed this uh, no we did not mention no, this, and this, this and yes I did find this interesting so uh, this is a little bit of a factoid surrounding birth calls and uh, their sort of legendary myth okay she says. While studying the records of the Great Inquisition, an Italian historian Carlo Ginsberg read of a group of men from the Friuli region of Italy who were persecuted as witches from the 1570s through the 1640s. I think he would place them within the cunning folk tradition. We talked about cunning folk actually in our la- uh, last um, episode on uh, the summer reading episode because yes. Warren Ellis uh, writes about cunning folk in his mm-hmm. new nonfiction book. They called themselves the Benendante, good walkers, or the Camis born with the call. These men were chosen only from among those who were born with the call, which reportedly they kept with them. They would go into a trance on certain days of the year. They believed they left their bodies, went to the field in spirit, and armed with fennel (laughs) stalks, battled evil witches to protect the harvest. If they lost, the harvest would fail. They also may have practiced healing. Ginsburg's research was published in a book called The Night Battles. Thanks for all the weird and wonderful podcasts. Keep up the great work. Oh, man, I've got to read about that. Yeah, that is, yeah. I actually think we need to do an episode on cunning folk um, because it just seems to be popping up in a lot of different locations lately. And and uh, there's there's a lot of like mixture of uh villagers trying to f- understand the world through this
1: tradition give me the one sentence pitch on cunning folk they're uh great britain's ancient wizards
2: sold okay so this is uh this is kind of in keeping with um uh jonathan strange and uh i think all that right yeah i think it's along those lines uh if you didn't hear the um The episode uh, where we talked about our summer reading recommendations Warren Ellis has a a digital book out called Cunning Plans and I believe it's maybe 99 cents on Kindle or something like that and he it's called Cunning Plans as such because he talks about the cunning folk tradition uh, and it's relevance to today and technology and philosophy and culture Uh, and he's also working on a comic right now that's called Injection and there's a character in that that is a cunning man
1: Double sold. Yeah. Okay. Got it. We're I recommend checking that.
2: both of them out.
0: All right. Well, let's call Carney over here again. Uh, looks like he's progressed somewhat with the turkey uh, and is on to
1: working on the cranberries. Well, depends on if you call progressed. I mean, <laughs> the legs are on the floor and there's a bunch of turkey juice on the wall. Well, it's a difficult algorithm to calibrate. Uh, okay. Well, what we, he we have there? Yeah, we at least have another email from, from Carney here. So this is an email from our listener, Jack, in reference to the episode Robert and I did about the science of slot machines and how they are perfectly designed to steal your money and maybe your soul. But this is what Jack says. Hey, first-time emailer, long-time listener. The first and only time I had experience with slot machines was one day when my dad had taken me out to the movies and we had about an hour to kill beforehand so he stuck me into a gaming lounge of the local bar. <laughs> he said he was going to teach me a lesson about gambling and how you never win. That is a good lesson for kids yeah. to learn. That's my comment, not Jack's. Uh, but Jack says... He started off by putting $20 into the machine. After about 10 minutes, this had been doubled by winning to 40 So we kept on playing. After about 30 minutes, we were on over $100. So he decided to quit on a 500% profit. He went on to tell me that this doesn't normally happen and not to gamble. Oh, that's hilarious. Cheers if you read this. I've been listening for about three years. Love all the podcasts that Works puts out. Well, thank you so much, Jack, but that's funny because, of course, within the uh, the great numbers of people who do gamble all around the world, part of the statistical profile of that number is that some tiny few will come out on top, but it's such a tiny few... You can't expect to be that person. What if the
0: slot machine has life lesson detection software, so that right. if it feels a life lesson coming on between a father and son, it pays out maximum. You that- know
2: what? We could. Uh, I would imagine that slot machine builders could do that nowadays. Yeah, right? you just slap on like Siri or some Google Voice pickup thing. It hears the <laughs> father say, "Here comes a life, le- life
1: lesson," and it's like, mm, "Dude, you are change the algorithm. You are kidding, but I am entirely serious that I think it's possible that someone could design a slot machine to, uh, to essentially have a camera in it that yeah. recognizes if the person sitting in front of the slot machine is probably a child. Oh. And if it's probably a child then it pays out at a higher rate than it normally yeah. would in order yeah. to cement positive feelings and reward associations within the mind of that child. Even if the slot machine loses on that one gaming session, yeah. it'll get it back for the rest of that child's life. It's like dealing drugs on a playground. Exactly right. You get them hooked when they're young. Mm. Game is the game, yo. Oh, one thing I forgot to include, but we should maybe read at some point, is we, we did get a comment on... Uh, on our slot machines episode from somebody who works in designing slot machines. And he, oh, he said that he liked our episode, but that we were unnecessarily harsh about <laughs> about slot machines, <laughs> so that we were too hard on them. I don't know. Were we too hard on them? Uh, you know,
0: I could see where one might have that opinion coming from the... Um sort of the, the you know from the from the technological side of the slot machine from even the the artisan side of the slot machine yeah. because it, this is this the individual's work you know yeah. but and we res- we respect the work you do for the skill you have yeah i mean the, the as just pure machines they they're phenomenal i mean the the technology involved the, the way that the technology has it really evolved just in such a short amount of time yeah. it's it's incredible but their overall
1: purpose is to Take money from people. Play to extinction. Yeah. Hey, speaking of extinction, it looks like Carney has another message for you, Robert, and this one smells like a corpse. Alright, this one comes to us from Amy. Amy
0: writes in and says, Hello, one of the way, one way of honoring remains, and she's referring to our human remains episode, right. is having them made into jewelry. What? I think it's kind of a neat way to keep uh, one, uh, loved ones quite literally with them. Uh, one company can make them into crystals or store them in small sealed uh, locket-like containers. My friend had a jeweler make a small metal ball necklace containing some of her mother's ashes in it. Uh, oh, and apparently it's illegal to have your pet's ashes mixed with your human ashes, though I have no idea how they enforce it. I, I also grew up around a lot of church cemeteries with sunken graves and crooked tombstones. There's a seminary in my childhood neighborhood where there were stones from the 1700s and the Jesuits that settled the area, many of which were weathered to illegibility. Also, there are a few European trees they brought with them. So uh that's uh, that's the 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 whole the creating taking the the ashes and processing them into some sort of uh, precious item. Yeah. Uh mm-hmm. I like the jewelry idea. I've also run across there was a company at least a few years back that were pushing the idea of having your ashes used to press a record, a uh-huh. vinyl record except of course it would be like some version of vinyl with right. ashes inside right. it and the record could contain uh, Sound of You Screaming yeah the, the Sound of <laughs> You Screaming well more, more likely a pleasant message or I would think maybe your favorite album Like, because what would be better in death than to become your favorite album maybe you're, it's a mix of all those things it's like
2: the Voyager recording
1: your own memorial song for your own death have you have you all ever heard Criswell's Someone Walked Over My Grave The Amazing Criswell yeah The Amazing Criswell from the beginning of Plan 9 from outer space if you're not familiar with him he was a guy who'd go on tv and predict stuff about the future that was always way super Uh super wrong uh but he wore a tuxedo so people believed him uh but he also ended up in ed wood's movies so he's at the beginning of plan nine from outer space going like greetings my friends you are interested in the future (laughs) Uh, but anyway he recorded a song called Someone Walked Over My Grave. Oh, It's I see on I heard YouTube. It. You should look it up. Huh. It's just him talking over some piano music about how someone walked over his grave and disturbed his sleep. Well, Is that what you'd pick? What would you pick if you had to pick one album? Oh, I'd say. make my own version of that, just kind of oh, like yeah. ominously threatening people with hauntings if they disturb my slumber. What if you had to pick your favorite album? You had to become that album in death. What would you pick? Uh, we've already
2: established it would have to be Dope Throne. Okay. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good one. How about you, Kristen? I think it would be like Black Flags Damaged. Okay. I would probably go with uh,
0: Boards of Canada's uh, Music Has uh, a Right to Children. I think that's a pleasant (laughs) album
2: to
1: become. Hey, so I've got another message here coming out of Carney that is also in reference to our Slot Machine episode. And this is, I think, a very useful math clarification. So, So this comes from our listener Rhiannon. And Rhiannon says, Hi guys, long time listener, love the podcast, but as someone with a master's in mathematics specializing in probability, I had to cringe in the most recent episode on slot machines. In the episode, you calculate the probability of winning on an eight picture slot machine as one eighth times one eighth times one eighth equals one out of 512. The math is sound here, but only if there was only one winning picture. Assuming that you can match any set of the eight pictures and win, so all three of any one alien picture, that's referring to a specific example I can explain in a minute. There are actually eight ways you can do this. So you need to multiply the probability by the eight ways you can win, which would be eight times one in 512, or one out of 64. Uh, And so what she's referring to is an example we had in this episode where there's an alien slot machine. It's got three reels, uh, one with the seven crew members of the Nostromo mm-hmm. and the alien on it. And if you want to line them up to win, what's your probability of winning? Uh, we said the probability of getting something like three three Ripley's is one-eighth times one-eighth times one-eighth. But uh, Rhiannon is exactly right that if you're not looking for three Ripley's or three Dallases or three Aliens, but any combination of three, the first reel doesn't matter. You're just trying to match the second two reels so the probability is actually 1 in 64 of any match, as opposed to 1 in 512 of a specified match. Um, and she goes on to explain that. Uh, she says another way to think of it is the first picture is irrelevant. So the probability of the first picture being a success is 8 out of 8. But the second picture is uh, must match the first, so the probability is 1 out of 8. And the same with the third picture, and then she lays out the math again. Oh, okay. Oh, wait, so how many people should have survived the Nostromo incident? <laughs> now
0: we can, it's, it's making me, cool, re, you just question everything I saw in Alien now. Well, you know, there, there are a couple of
1: characters way. who we never explicitly see die. You, you never know if they survived, though the ship does kind of explode in a nuclear uh, vaporization <laughs> event. Technically, so. there are two survivors. Oh, including the cat. Jonesy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jonesy is a wonderful Jonesy. But also, so Rhiannon finishes by saying, thanks for all that you do and keeping my runs interesting. I'm a professional marathon runner hoping to make my country's Canada Olympic standard. Holy cow. I have lots of miles to learn. Thank you so much for that clarification, Rhiannon. We always really appreciate when our incredibly smart listeners... Uh, can, uh, can correct and clarify if there's something we say that sounds fishy. So we, we really appreciate that. And also I thought it's interesting that you mentioned running. Cause I, I do feel like we hear from a lot of people who listen while running. Yeah. Is this a common thing? I listen to podcasts like that sometimes. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I don't run, so I can't speak to that, but I'm glad that we're
2: there with people as they run. Rhiannon sounds pretty awesome. Getting yeah. a master's degree in mathematics and a professional marathon runner. Yeah. I feel humbled. Yeah. yeah,
1: and possibly a witch. That's a, that's a <laughs> powerful person. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like we've got another message here. And, oh, this one has a warning on it that we should not handle it without gloves. Okay. What's Let that me, about?
2: I, I think I can guess. Let me get my gardener's gloves on here. Okay, it says, Hi guys, I love the podcast and have been a listener for years. I just finished the Wolfsbane episode and wanted to help with Christian's confusion about the Nazi bullet experiment. This is one of those moments, usually happens about once or twice an episode where I posit something really stupid scientifically and a listener writes in and it comes up with a good answer to it. So he says, it all comes down to the bullet expansion. So what I was talking about was whether or not you could put Wolfsbane inside a bullet because Nazis were uh, doing tests with, with aconite uh, to see if they could weaponize it. So he says, it all comes down to bullet expansion. A lot of bullets are engineered with hollow points to help them expand when they hit animals, meat, legs, etc. This hollow portion can carry a small amount of an alternate substance and not substantially hurt the metal bullet's expansion. A tricky part to this is that each bullet has to be designed to expand when fired from the right gun as well. A bullet designed for a pistol won't expand well when fired from a long-barreled rifle. The velocity would be all wrong. This is my bet for why the test bullets failed to expand and over-penetrated. On a somewhat lighter note, if you rewatch Jaws now, you'll better understand the scene where the police chief pours mercury into his hollow point bullets. Huh. Expanded discussion points include the Geneva Conventions and ethical military bullet design. Thanks for the great podcasts. Excellent. That's a nice nice. Uh, <laughs> Bonus info. Yeah, because if I remember correctly, it turned out that the Nazi experiments did not work. It they, did not. They, they were yeah. shooting people with aconite, and there was no other than being shot. There would, would no uh, poison effects from the aconite, right? Uh, but in, it sounds like he's questioning their their methodology.
0: All right, here's another bit of uh, listener mail from, uh, coming into us here from Joyce. Joyce writes in and says, Hi, I'm listening to your ghouls episode, and at the end of it, uh, it's about human cannibalism. My uncles grew up during World War II in China, and my parents grew up uh, during the Vietnam War, and food was extremely scarce. They remember seeing people eat dead babies to survive. In order to get around the emotional attachment to the, to the dead child, the people ate each other's babies. So I guess it isn't ancient history. Or morally wrong, given some culture circumstances? War stories, they tell me growing up, make me very glad and thankful for the semi-peaceful times we live in now. Keep up the good work. Loved the sane, insane episode. Referring to the Rosenhan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a, a great point that jo- Joyce brings up. Uh, certainly, we, we got into... Human can- uh, cannibalism, yeah, uh, as the, it, the taboo
1: on nonviolent cannibalism, right? Like, yeah, why, like, we know it's obvious why there would be a taboo on killing people sure. to eat them, but if somebody's already dead, why do we have a taboo against eating their flesh if it's not going to hurt them? Anymore?
2: Like the yeah. alive scenario, yeah, survival yeah.
0: cannibalism, mm-hmm. which is, is an important part. Of any discussion of, of human cannibalism history, uh, because that's where you see it pop up. This choice you have to make: well, what, what do I do to survive? What am I willing to do to survive? And uh, yeah, I mean, if the circumstance, uh, my opinion on this is: yeah, if you're in circumstances where survival
1: cannibalism is the only way to survive. I and mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. So here, Joyce says one of the things is that they they got around. I think some of the the uh, emotional distress caused by the violation of this taboo by eating each other's dead uh, children or, or babies instead of their own. Mm-hmm. And so they. I mean, I guess that could help put some kind of distance between you and uh, the horror of it. I guess. Uh, I mean, there's uh, they, again to her
0: point. I mean. Thank God that, uh, that uh, you know, we don't live we're not living currently in time so dire yeah. that we have to make that kind of choice and figure out how to compartmentalize it uh, and, and make it work for our survival.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, <clears throat> the, the expeditions that went through the Northwest Passage in the 19th century, because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those ships went missing, especially the Franklin expedition is really famous for it. Uh, and they they believe that not only did the ships sink and go missing in fact they recently have found evidence of Franklin's ships but that there was cannibalism that went on and it was not survival cannibalism the the bones that they have found of some of the sailors uh, had mark indentations on their bones of of cutting all right so we got another one coming out of the machine here and it's Glowing. It's really.
1: I don't know. It's kind of far away. I don't know if I can reach it, but I think it's for you, Joe. Uh, yeah, this is from our listener Eric, who is responding to the episode Robert and I did in our Halloween season about Will of the Wisp, the the glowing light in the bog, and uh wh- and what is it? Uh, one of the things we talked about in the episode is the fact that Will o' the Wisp sightings seem to have sharply dropped off in the past hundred years or so. People used to report these all the time. Uh, writers from the eighteen hundreds and before. Talk about it as if it's extremely common, something people would just be familiar with in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. They'd be very likely to have seen it. I've never seen a Will-o'-the-Wisp, and it seems like most people haven't. So. And I
2: wasn't on the episode, but I told you guys off-air that the only reason I knew what it was was because there was a Spider-Man villain called will the wisp that appeared in <laughs> an 80s comic I read.
1: Well, apparently a lot of people are familiar with it from D&D. So oh, yeah. That's another right. reference point we talked about in the episode. But anyway, we asked our listeners... Hey, have you ever seen the Will of the Wisp phenomena? And if you have, uh, write us and tell us. And so a couple of people did. One of them was Eric, who wrote us this very interesting story. Eric says, hey, gentlemen, you ask for anyone who's seen the elusive Will of the Wisp. I have had an experience with such an entity. I live in upstate New York, Chenango County, Chenango. That sounds it. Sure. Chenango County. I love to hike on the many Finger Lake trails or any trail that spreads across the woods. The area of land behind where I grew up had several pond marshy areas connected by a series of streams. Generally just a wet place, no bog or swamp though. At the age of 14, eight years back or so, I was several miles from home when darkness fell. I know all the woods there pretty well for my copious times wandering through them. It's also hard to get lost. If you walk in any direction for a little while, you will find a road, not a vast wilderness for sure. I was casually walking on a trail back with the moon as the only light when off to my right, about 300 feet into the woods, I see a bobbing whitish blue light. I walked, keeping an eye on it, thinking if there were any houses out that way, there were not. Not mm. only that, but it seemed to be moving parallel to me. This is an awesome creepy pasta. Yeah. I thought to myself, I'm not starving or near dehydration. I'm not delirious or mad. But I had a profound skeptical curiosity in the supernatural. I thought it might be a ghost. My neighbor liked to tell ghost stories about people getting lost in the woods by following a large white buck during deer season. Or a girl in distress that they could never seem to find. I think he just liked to scare me. I like the, the buck. That sounds like yeah, a more recent great. take on uh, the same trope. Anyways, I followed it off the trail, taking note of where I was. I followed it, never seeming to be able to get closer than a 100 feet or so from it, but it looked like a dim blue flame bobbing and swaying in the dark, dancing around trees, egging me on to follow it. Prevaricating my worst thoughts, I kept following. It meandered through the woods. I had to walk over many little streams and around wet areas where it became hard to pass through. This went on for about an hour. Before I lost sight of it, I walked to where it last was, and it was the edge of one of the old farmer's fields. There are a lot of old fields that are not near any roads or anything, just isolated in the woods. I saw the bobbing light on the other side of the field. I knew exactly where I was and had had enough, and decided to walk home. The road was only a little less than a mile from where I was. I followed the edge of the field to a path at one of the corners, and the light followed me. But at some point during this time, it split off into three smaller bobbing lights. They never went too far from each other. One would get ahead, and the others would quickly catch up. But they went parallel to me till I got to the path and I couldn't see them in the woods anymore, but I glanced back and saw them at the end of the path after I walked a little ways in. At this point, I began to walk fast, getting more and more unnerved. They never seemed to catch up, even after I started to run and ran out of breath and stopped to grab my breath. They didn't seem to get any closer, even though I wasn't moving. A few minutes later, I got to the road. I turned to see if they were still following me, I could still see them, but way farther off than uh, they had been the entire time. I watched them fade back into the woods behind the trees and brush. I walked back home, haunted by what I saw. I never told many people about that because uh, it obviously sounds crazy. I researched it and came across the term Will-o'-the-Wisp in later weeks, but had never seen anything saying there were any sightings in the area. I never saw them again, though, despite many night hikes since then. Well, thought you guys would enjoy one of my more horrifying memories from my confusing, (laughs) angst-filled adolescence, battling with the existential dread of wondering about life after death and other planes of existence. Anyway, you guys are the best. I enjoy listening to you and other Works podcasts. You feed the nerd in me. Uh, P.S. Robert, you have inspired me to grow sideburns the way they elegantly compliment your face. I hope oh. I can pull them off half as well as you do. Always will be listening here. Here, here. here. Robert <laughs> has excellent sideburns. He does. I'm always jealous. Thank you so much for this story, Eric. This was great. I, I don't know. I, I'm envious of this. I mean, I know yeah. it sounds like it was scary at the time. I wish I could see a Will of the Wisp. Mm. And why this, aren't there stories like this all over the also,
2: place? Also, I got to say, like, just the way that he wrote this, like, it was... I was joking about the creepypasta thing, but there was a haunting way that this was written. It reminded me of, like, a Laird Barron story or one of those old Algernon Blackwood
1: stories. Yeah, like, a yeah. Story. Uh story. Yeah, that's creepy. So, Eric, I'd be interested to hear what you think it was, having actually seen it. If you listen to our episode, we talked about the different hypotheses about what could be causing the will of the wisp. But the fact that there's really a lot of difficulty in deciding what it is because we can't like catch one and look at it in the lab and examine it. You're just trying to match explanations to written descriptions of phenomena.
0: All right, looks like uh, Carney is handing me another listener mail, only he's handing this one to me with uh, what appears to be a cadaver arm with a puppet oh, strings attached to it. Okay. okay, I think I know what
2: this might be about. This
0: must be in reference to our fist punch theory of evolution episode mm-hmm. that de- deals with uh, the work of David Carrier uh, and his research team into how... Um, the human fist might have evolved to punch yeah. other humans in the face, um, which is a fascinating theory explored in that uh, in that episode. And, and hey, as it turns out, this bit of email comes to us from David Carrier himself. Whoa. Wow, that's yeah.
2: flattering. I'm flattered that he listened to the episode, but then what seems to be written here is also. It, it, go ahead and read it. It's very okay, flattering. Yeah.
0: This comes to it comes from again from David Carrier, professor, Department of Biology, University of Utah. Hi, Robert and Christian. Thanks very much for the thoughtful and entertaining podcast and video you did on our recent article. Your podcast provides the best discussion of our work that I know of.
1: Aww. Best
0: wishes, Dave. Wow! Wow!
2: that, that really. Kind of gets me.
1: We yeah. love hearing from the scientists who actually create the work that we reference in our episodes every now and then we do. I know we we heard from uh, the person behind the Echo Borg study mm-hmm. when we did the Echo Borg episode and, and this one too. And that is, I'd say it's one of the most rewarding feelings is when... I don't know as a as a science communicator I at least often have the feeling of I really hope I'm representing this well and everything yeah. and and just having the person who actually did the work get in touch with you and let you know that in one way or another you didn't completely screw it up. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it feels like or at least if, if nothing else I was I was accurate, and I was able to convey the, the
2: the truth of the study. So yeah, And this reminds me, actually, we did receive a few messages, both uh, as emails and through Facebook, from listeners who have martial arts backgrounds, mm-hmm. and they were adding in that uh, they questioned the relevancy of the fist as the way that our hands would evolve for the best potential way to hit somebody in the face, mm-hmm. because apparently uh, the palm strike is known as a much uh, better way to do so without hurting your own hand. You know, I don't know anything about this, but we heard from several people about it.
1: I So I don't want to inherently criticize people who say that. They may entirely be right, but that also... Sounds a little bit like it could be bro science. Oh <laughs> well, it might
2: be. We talked extensively about bro science in that episode. You you came up. I I, I mentioned yeah. your
1: uh your disdain for bro science. Well, I mean, bro science is bro science. Well, you know,
0: we may just have to have uh, see if Professor Kerry uh, will talk to us sometime. And yeah, we maybe we maybe questions.
1: his
2: next thing could be about palm strikes. Who knows? It, it, he's he's produced uh, several different studies. Yeah, on I this think we so, read like at least four or five for that episode. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, I, no, I want to be clear about that. I. I I'm not criticizing uh, Dr. Carrier's studies No, right, right. Because right. if it's real science, I wouldn't call it bro science. You've got good good methodology and empirical verification. I, d- I don't consider that bro science. Bro science is, oh, man, you're doing your protein stack all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. It looks like we have one
0: final bit of listener mail here. And this one, again, is uh, is wrapped in a
1: membrane of some sort. All right. Let me see if I can chew it off. Bel- Ew. I think this is actually a website comment uh, and hopefully on our next listener mail episode we can get into a few more of the great comments that have been left on our yeah web page It's harder for
0: us to keep track of those sometimes because we don't yeah. get a it, it doesn't ping us when those go up we have to go back and, and Yeah and right if
2: for you're, them. if you're unfamiliar with what we're talking about on the landing page at stufftoblowyourmind.com for the page Where each episode is embedded, there's a comment section at the bottom there. And I believe it posts to your personal Facebook, but we don't necessarily see it because it doesn't go directly to the stuff to blow your mind. Right, the system needs a
0: little tweaking, but we still try and go back and read them. So Mm -hmm. uh, by
2: all means, uh, feel free to interact with us there. This was a particularly good one about the birth call episode. It's from Jenna, and she says, I'm a student midwife in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, Australia. I feel extremely lucky that my first ever solo birth two weeks ago was an on-call birth. I'd like to share my experience. As the baby was exiting the birth canal, we could feel that the amniotic amniotic sac membrane was still intact. As you mentioned, normally the amniotic sac will burst, However, as the baby was born, I very briefly held it within the amniotic sac, like a baby in a big water balloon. It was a thin, opaque membrane, very full of baby and amniotic fluid. (laughs) I pierced the amniotic sac with my hands and removed the membrane from the baby. Both mother and baby are doing fine. Thanks for your brilliant podcast, as always. So, as we talked about in the episode, it's exceedingly rare to be born with a birth call, but it's even more rare to be born on call, which is Mm -hmm. your, the amniotic sac is completely intact and hasn't ripped or broken at all. Uh, this, and, and, and you know, as we've talked about earlier, there are a lot of uh, myths about such babies and the, the powers that they may hold.
1: Well, let's uh, hope that this baby is imbued with vast and powerful abilities. What I
2: want to know, Jenna, is what did you do with the the sack afterwards? Because that also holds power. You know, you can, as we talked about in the episode, you can bury it in the yard behind the house, or you can sell it to a sailor for good luck, it can keep you from drowning. <laughs> There's so many things that that these uh, these birth calls can do, uh, but but to have an entire
1: sack. That's that's useful. Wait, wait, I can't... I assume you're meaning, like, according to legend. Are you saying there are, like, also scientific things that no. a birth call can do? Oh. There's just a lot of
2: legends about birth calls, yeah. Okay. Lo, lots of oh, legends yeah. about different variations, depending on the color, depending on how big they are, whatever uh, of the various effects they can have.
0: Yeah. I think the only issue we ran into is that we, we wished we could have found more stories from Asia and Africa.
2: Yeah. That was the thing. A lot of the legends were mostly European based. Yeah. Uh, it actually, Jen is in Australia. So I wonder what kind of, um, you know, legends may have risen up around birth calls there. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah but thanks for writing in. I, I it just that sounds like a thing that you would be in awe of. I know people talk about babies being born like that, anyways, but like it coming out in the membrane like that would just be like, whoa. Yeah. Hey guys, look, like, I think Carney's bringing out our meal. Oh. Oh, let the heat sl- oh Look, wow. There's even a little tofurkey for me. Oh. But
0: it's in a birth call. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like there's some there's some sand in the center of the uh, turkey cadaver. Yeah, and, and there uh, are some uh, corpse jewelry mixed in with the stuffing. Ooh, it's kind of rough, Carney. But I mean, you,
2: what what else can you do? I mean, it's, it's the way you're programmed. Well, I guess we better dig in, guys. Okay. So if you want to send uh, more information to us, what, maybe you want to respond to some of these, or maybe you want to respond to some of the other episodes, well, you can write us at BlowTheMind at For
1: more on this and
2: thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.